Today's Old Testament scripture reading is taken from Psalm 139, verses 1 to 12 and 23 to 24. You'll find this in your pew Bibles on pages 577 and 578. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Even if you are not in the habit of following along in your Bibles uh, as we read Scripture, I encourage you uh, to follow along because uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, as you know, is thick and dense, and uh, it, it may be that it will help to both hear it and, and read at the same time. Uh, we're making our way through chapter 7 and 8, and I, I'm up to the midpoint of, of uh, chapter 8, and so the Scripture reading comes from uh, verses 12 through 26, I'm going to add one more verse to the reading for today. So beginning with uh, chapter, uh, beginning with verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay 
and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hoped for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, I I hope that someone in these last few weeks has uh, taken the time to read Romans 7 and 8. Those are the chapters we've been reading and and talking about and and reflecting on for these last few weeks. Uh, Two chapters that, as I've said before, are at the very center uh, of our faith. It would be hard to think of two more important chapters uh, in all of Scripture. And uh, as you will see, if you do that simple exercise, there's so much there and uh, so much we could talk about and and reflect on, so much that we could apply uh, to our lives. Uh, Sam read the verses that uh, I just read for you uh, earlier in the week to figure out what to say to the the children this morning. And uh, he came away with what I thought was a completely different insight and and truth uh, uh, than the one I decided to uh, preach about today. So the insight that we're growing in faith and that we have to cast aside childhood concerns to grow into the skin of Jesus Christ is a fine insight, but it's not the one that stood out for me this week. The longer I lived with this text and the longer I reflected on it, the more convinced I became that the text is actually teaching us something about prayer. And not just about prayer, but about our relationship with God, which we discover when we pray. Uh, Prayer can be a window, I think, into our relationship with God. Uh, As a pastor, uh, this won't surprise you, I'm sure. As a pastor, I sometimes feel like a a professional prayer. Uh, I'm often the one people turn to for a prayer at at mealtime or on just about any other uh, special occasion. And I have to say that I was surprised to be called on at the beginning of my ministry, not so much now, uh, but uh, Doug, would you say the prayer? I mean, I've I've grown accustomed to that request. Uh, And and not because I'm especially good at it, but because this is my calling. This is my vocation, I I would expect, uh, to be asked to pray now and then. Uh, At my mother's 90th birthday party uh, a couple of months ago, with the whole family sitting down to eat in a, a fancy hotel, she suddenly turned to me and said, Doug, would you say the blessing? (laughs) Well, ordinarily, I like to think a little bit about what I'm about to say uh, before I say it, especially if there's a a large group of people. Uh, But when your 90-year-old mother asks you to pray for her birthday, uh, you do not say, uh, well, Mom, let me think about it uh, for a minute. Uh, And because I do so much praying, publicly and, and privately, I'm always delighted when I am not asked. When someone says, Doug, why don't you take the night off? I will pray the prayer. And then on those occasions, I almost always hear some wonderful prayers. 
some uh, deeply touching and, and uh, moving prayers, words I would not have expected uh, to hear. I served at church one time uh, where one of the members was the CEO of a, a Fortune 500 uh, company, and everyone knew this man, and I think he was our local celebrity, and, and we were proud that uh, he would be there in worship uh, every week with his wife and, and uh, daughters. Uh, and he also taught Sunday school every week, uh, uh, 10 or 11 year olds, I forget exactly which grade, so he, he was committed and, and the rest of us realized when we saw him that, uh, well, if he could find time to be in worship and to teach Sunday school, then maybe uh, uh, we could uh, find time as well. Anyway, Larry, that, that was his name, uh, Larry was never afraid to pray. Uh, I officiated at his daughter's wedding and then I uh, prayed at the, the wedding reception afterward, but uh, other than that, Larry prayed. And if you are the CEO of a large corporation, you do not shirk your responsibility in any area of life. And, and Larry did not shirk his responsibility in the, the spiritual area of life. And, and Larry could pray like uh, no, no one else I have ever heard. When he prayed, you felt as though you were in a high-level meeting. And uh, it was all business. And there was a great deal at stake, and it was very serious, and it always sounded to me as though Larry was addressing the chairperson of the meeting, the largest shareholder, and the one who made the ultimate decisions. There was never any doubt uh, when we listened to Larry pray uh, about who was in charge, and it wasn't Larry. Uh, this was his prayer language. And uh, his prayer style, and I, I'm not sure I like those words, but I, I think you know what I mean. And, and, and everyone, as you can imagine, listened very carefully when he prayed. Uh, that, that's not my prayer language. I have to say, that's not my uh, prayer style. My, my experience with the corporate world is limited. Uh, but I wonder uh, how someone would describe uh, my prayer language and uh, my prayer style. I mean, how would you describe your own prayer life? If someone were to listen to you over a long period of time, as we used to listen to Larry, what would they say? What conclusions would they reach about your relationship with God? My daughters, when they were growing up, would tease me. Well, they would tease me about everything, but they would tease me about the way I dressed and the way I talked, you name it. Daughters, I think, exist to keep fathers humble. And, and uh, when a church member would call our home in the evening, uh, my daughters uh, liked to point out that my voice changed. <laughs> so it, they liked to say that I had this ministerial tone when uh, a church member would call. And, and to them, uh, this was the teasing part, it, it sounded fake and, and not authentic, not the way I talked to them. And I have to say, when I got over being irritated that they would tease me uh, about something like that, it was a good reminder. Uh, it was a good reminder that I needed to be authentic. I needed to be the same person no matter who I was talking to. And I think the, the same principle applies to our prayer lives. Uh, if your life is anything at all like mine, you go through periods and stages and chapters and, and there are always periods or, or stages where I feel needy and desperate and, and to be honest, kind of pathetic. And, and, and so uh, these are uh, stages where in my prayer life I say, well, 
God, please do this, and God, please do that, and, and, and if you have time, please do that other thing as well. And over the years, I've had many stages uh, or, or periods in my life where my prayers were begging prayers, and they weren't pretty, but they were authentic. Uh, but, and I'm happy to say this, there have been other times in, in my life, this I think is one of them, when my prayers have been all about gratitude. So thank you, God, for the gift of life. Thank you that I have air in my lungs. You know, thank you that I was able to get out of bed this morning. Thank you that I was able to make that long walk to the train station. I'm so grateful. And then, and of course there are many variations on all of this, there have also been those times when my prayers were not really prayers at all. There have been times when I was mostly quiet. When I didn't know what to say. And, and uh, when I didn't know what to pray for, to be honest, uh, when my words seemed so inadequate, uh, I would open my mouth and, and uh, no words would, would come out. And when something terrible or horrific happens in the world, uh, when there's a mass shooting in the U.S., when there's a, a terrorist bombing somewhere in, in Europe, uh, when I read about the latest famine in Africa, I, yeah, I'm not sure what to say anymore. Three words fail me. And as a preacher and as a, a writer and, and someone who's so proud of, of his words, probably more so than I, I should be, uh, I, I'm aware that my words disappear when I need them most. Uh, in those situations, even if I can think of the, the words to say, the words that uh, come to mind never seem adequate to the task. And, and sometimes I've said everything I, I know to say. And then I just shut up. I, I, I feel exhausted and I think God is probably exhausted from listening to me. He, he must think, Doug, is that the best you have? And is that kind of situation that I think Paul had in mind when he wrote the verses we heard today? There are times, Paul seems to say, when the Spirit intercedes for us. When, when the Spirit bears witness, as our uh, translation uh, uh, puts it, when the Spirit helps us in our weakness, when the Spirit gives us the language right, that we can't find on our own. You know, it's important to see that sometimes this language is not a real language at all. There's no grammar to it. There's, there, there's no syntax. But instead, there is what, what Paul calls groaning. And if you grew up in a, a Pentecostal uh, tradition, then you may be way ahead of the rest of us here. Uh, you're experienced with this, and, and, and you know what it means. But if you grew up in a tradition like the one uh, where I grew up, uh, you know, your experience is going to be very different. Uh, in my experience, uh, prayers require words, and, and a, a, a grammar, and beginning, middle, and end. What Paul is saying, though, I think, is that what happens in prayers, in this kind of prayer, is that we give our spirit over to God's spirit. We let the spirit do its job on us. We let the spirit say what we are no longer capable of saying, and then what comes out of us, and these are, these are Paul's words, are, are sighs too deep for words. And you might say, ah, what is that? No size too deep for words. If you're a rational thinker, if, if you're a scientist, someone who values clear thinking, then, yeah, I mean, yes, uh, this language is going to sound like nonsense. 
But please remember that Paul is no academic slouch. Uh, he certainly ranked as one of the, the best educated people uh, of his time. So uh, be careful if you are tempted to dismiss him and, and words like this too quickly. Too quickly. I think he's grasping for an important truth. Throughout the Bible, there are these places where uh, people are uh, overcome with emotion and, and uh, where words aren't even necessary, where the pain and, and suffering uh, are, are expressed physically. And one of those places is in Exodus 3. I know most of you know this story where God says to Moses that uh, he, God, has seen the suffering of his people in Egypt. And he has heard their cry. Right? And, and, and maybe these, these prayers were offered aloud, but what God is referring to is something deeper, and it's a pain that cannot be expressed, and all God had to do was look at them, and, and he could see their distress, and he could feel their turmoil, and he knew that something had to be done. And, and then one of my personal favorites, because it's such a wonderful glimpse into Jesus' humanity, is uh, found in, in John chapter 11. So what happens here is that Jesus receives news that his friend Lazarus is gravely ill, and by the time he reaches Bethany, which is where Lazarus lived with his sisters Mary and Martha, Lazarus has died. And when Jesus receives this news, and when he sees Mary weeping at his feet, the story says, and this is how our translation puts it, that Jesus was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. Well, I mean, as every first-year New Testament Greek student knows, that's not the best possible translation of those words. That's a terrible translation, in fact. And what happens to Jesus in these verses is that he convulses with pain. His entire body reacts to the news, and I imagine his shoulders heaving and his, his legs giving out beneath him. His head is spinning, and this is what awful news does to us. We feel faint, and we feel a need to, to sit down. And then the, the shortest verse in the Bible appears right there, Jesus wept, but it's almost unnecessary. Right? When you think about it, because of course he wept. Uh, but you see, no words are, are necessary. Everyone who was there that day could uh, plainly see what was happening. Some of them even said, do you see how much he loved him? Right? Meaning how much Jesus loved Lazarus. So I'm guessing, and I, I don't know this, uh, of course, but I'm guessing that all of us have had these moments. So, uh, someone close to us dies. Uh, and the news is unexpected, or a, a job unexpectedly comes to an end, or a marriage ends, or, or, or there's disappointment, and whatever it is, we react physically. There's an Irish, or actually Gaelic, uh, word, uh, to keen. And uh, keening is what mourners do at, at funerals and Many, many parts of the world, uh, or whenever there's an, a, a news of death. And I think it's such a good word because it, I mean, it actually sounds like the thing itself. Right? When people are keening, there, there is a pain being expressed that is too deep for words. Well, I mean, as interesting and familiar as all of this is, I, I, I don't want to leave you there, frankly. Uh, it's surprising to me that in a chapter as full of hope as uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, there would be so much talk about suffering. Uh, and in case you were not aware, Romans 8 is the most reassuring chapter in all of Scripture. I mean, this is where we find the, the resounding 
uh, uh, confirmation that there is no condemnation. Right? And, 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 and also, if God is for us, who can be against us? And in all these things, we are more than conquerors. All these statements are found in this wonderful chapter of the Bible. I mean, if, if you want the, the language of victory in life, go to Romans chapter 8. So why all of this talk about suffering and, and groaning? Well, here's the wonderful insight that I, I want to leave with you today. And, and this is an insight I, I don't think I'd ever had before. Uh, it happens every time I read a text. Uh, it, it yields something new and, and, and fresh and, and interesting uh, to me. Uh, and, and here it is. It is our faith. Right? This, this confident hope that we carry around with us that, that causes us to feel suffering. And that may sound odd, so let me say it uh, differently. If, if we weren't so confident of a final victory over sin and death, if we weren't absolutely sure that God was going to win in the end, then we would never feel all of these setbacks in life so deeply. The, the pain in our world, the, the, the pain in our own lives is magnified because we know that God does not intend this for us. We know that God has something far more and, and, and far better in mind for us. We know that this present suffering, as Paul puts it, will one day be gone for good. So in a strange and unexpected way, our faith magnifies the pain we feel. It's not right, we think. You know, the, the injustices in the world are not right. And, and, and when a person close to us dies, it's not right. And, and, and when we are cheated or, or, or taken advantage of and, and we are treated as though we are less than human, it's not the way God intended things to be. But it is our faith in a final victory that allows us to feel outrage and, and disgust and the longing for something better. So I want to leave you uh, with something today. I, we started by talking about prayer and, and, and we ended by acknowledging that not all prayer has or even needs uh, words. And I want to leave you with a question about your own prayer life. Not uh, do you pray, I'm hoping that you do, but uh, what is it that you are praying for? I mean, what is it that, that gives your prayers shape and, and uh, hope and, and meaning? I think that what Paul suggests here in, in these words is that we begin to pray for this, this ultimate conclusion. For, for the time when, when all things will be made new. All right? for, for that final victory. I mean, that should be the common denominator of all of our prayers. So this is how he puts it at the end of the chapter. Who will separate us? These are Paul's words. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or, or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, there's something to pray for. Right? Will you pray with me? Let us pray. Uh, God, we thank you that when words fail us, when we no longer know what to say, that your spirit prays for us and that your spirit intercedes for us. God, we pray that you will pray in and through us now. Keep before us the the vision of the final victory, the time when sin and death will disappear, the time when your lordship will become clear to all. We pray this full of hope and trust and longing. In Jesus' name.